Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Their parents drug them along unwillingly because the kids want to stop and listen. And maybe the night before, those parents had been among the people who'd paid $100 a pop to hear him. Yeah. Wow. There's something so remarkable, I think, about that ability to be in awe. Um, my kids still have it. (laughs) And I remember once coming back from Target and there was a homeless man who would sit on that intersection and he always had a book. And he also had a sign that was right in front of him that just said, you know, please help in need. Thank you. And we had a box of snack bars or something like that that we gave to him and um, had a little conversation at the stoplight. And Cole said, well, can't we just bring him home with us? There's no good answer. (laughs) You know, he said, "We we have an extra room. Can't we just bring him home? And I'm like... I don't have a good answer as to why not. Well, I thought of that clip uh, and I hope that uh, I'll send you the link. So I kind of hope that we might be able to play it Sunday. Um, Of course, for people who hear this podcast, they won't be surprised by it. But I have been thinking since we... um, are going to do your very favorite passage in all of the Bible Sunday. In the whole entire entire Bible. Bible. (laughs) I haven't read the whole Bible, just to be fair. (laughs) I don't necessarily recommend that, by the way. Yeah. Um, Sometimes there is the light of the world out there and we don't see it. Yeah. And I think this video is is an example of that. That here you have this incredibly gifted, talented human being playing Beethoven, and people just walk by. Right. Yeah, that's one of. It reminds me of one of Meister Eckhart's sermons. I have a download of some of his translated sermons and um it's something to the effect of you know i need never write another sermon if i just watch the butterfly or the caterpillar Mm -hmm. spin a cocoon and there's um there is a lot of kind of ego theology or um i would say even cosmology around um the universe wants to be adored (laughs) Matthew Fox is kind of in that camp. He's very poetic in his sermonizing. I would say even Brian Swim falls in that category of like the the uniform the universe wants to be adored. 
It is there so that we maintain and develop a reciprocal sense of all. And that's... Um, well, I also think that this, you know, the, the being, as we talked about last week, the salt of the earth and the light of the world is simply what happens if we embody the Eightfold Path and if we embody the Beatitudes, that's simply a given. Mm -hmm. It's just as you, as you said last Sunday, it's not asking us to do anything other than be who we truly, truly are. And, and another thing that made me think about this Joshua Bell thing is that the people who paid attention to him playing were the children. And mm -hmm. when we get these egos, we start thinking, I think the, the ego is tempted to interpret being the salt of the earth and the light of the world <clears throat> in dramatically unhelpful ways. Mm. As we call attention to ourselves. Look at me. I am something. Yeah. You know, the, the, one of the most helpful uh, little spiritual books I've read in my life is one uh, called Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. Have you ever read that? I have not read it, um, but I am aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. an incredible paradox involved in... Um, being the light of the world is not about us. Yeah. Well, the decentering of the self, I think, is probably one of the most fundamental changes we need as not only an American society, but as a human species. There's something really, really lovely about self consciousness, right? Self consciousness allows us to reflect deeply. Um, it allows us even to create. So if I behold a majestic landscape and then recreate it in my imagination via paint or storytelling, that, that's a certain kind of self-consciousness, right? That's, that's, as we would say, the universe becoming self-conscious of itself. But whenever ego interferes with self-consciousness or with reflection, then we recenter ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, I'm toying a lot with this, this kind of idea that in order to find a greater sense of belonging, we need to learn how to unbelong. And unbelonging decenters the individual experience and recenters us in this sort of collective existence, I guess. That's my thinking. I had this lucky opportunity, happenstance, to talk to this man who is really an astute both social commentator and political observer. And I hadn't spoken to him in a, a year or so. And the last time I spoke to him, he predicted, he virtually predicted the outcome of this recent presidential election, saying that it would not be a win by as big a people as big a margin as people who would wish for, particularly those who are concerned about the future of the democratic institutions and social justice and that sort of thing. By the way, I had not talked to him 
the last time I talked to him was well before George Floyd. Mm, interesting. So it'd been a while. Yeah. Uh, but even even so, um, I, I asked him, we caught up about COVID, what was happening, what the prospects were, the, the idea of a peaceful transition in this political administration and a number of things. And I said, if what do you think needs to happen for us to be able to go forward more productively as a country? And he said, we need uh, to reclaim the best parts of tribalism and redefine who's in the tribe. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the positives of tribalism. There's loyalty. Um, mm -hmm. There's accountability. There's protection of the other members of the tribe. Right. There is a sense, if I were to think of what I have learned about um, early humans and reciprocity, or mm -hmm. everyone sort of has a function. Mm -hmm. You know, there may be the shaman, there may be the healer, there may be the medicine man or woman, there are the hunters and the gatherers, the caregivers and the makers. Um, those that that sense again of belonging and part of belonging is knowing your role knowing what it is that you have to offer and i and it takes me back to like well what does it mean to unbelong i think i think it is to not know your role to not know mm. how to fit i'm reading this new to me book by daremut amuraku another one <laughs> Another one. He has a book every year, it feels like. Yeah. Um, and it's called Inclusivity, the Gospel Mandate. Ah, yeah. And um, in, inclusivity is um, something that is really, really risky yeah. to talk about and to reach for because um, the the way that Jesus redefined tribalism, and it's the reason that he was executed, was that he he created this this notion of the radically inclusive table. Mm -hmm. That is probably the most radical thing that Jesus did in his ministry. Mm -hmm. Because at the time in the Roman world and in the Jewish world, eating was a highly prescribed ritual with very defined roles for people at the table. Right. There was the head of the table, there was the host, there was the foot of the table, there were prescribed rules and so forth. So it gets risky because in a functioning tribe, you do have roles. Yes. But if those roles become things that divide people, mm -hmm. then the tribe no longer functions well. Yeah. This, um, you know, one of my favorite Last Supper paintings, speaking of um, getting around the table, no one can see it on this um, <laughs> podcast, but it's the, it's Leonardo da Vinci's um, Last Supper. And part of the reason I like it is because of the expression. I'm looking at it right now. I just pulled it up. Um, there are so many different 
body postures in that, right? Like there are, there are those who are leaning away in sort of shock. There are those leaning in as if, listen to me. There are those kind of um, talking to one another. So there's side conversations going on. In other words, what it has is a lot of action, even in this kind of still painting. And um, what that also says is, and, and we know the story that Jesus was going to be betrayed and that is, is maybe what some of the shock was about or the sort of, no, but, but what it also says to me is that this is a, it was, it's vibrant, it's active, it's participatory, and it doesn't seem like it's peaceful entirely. In other words, what these guys did was stay in the room. They stayed in the room in a moment of difficulty. They stayed around the table in, a, in, in, in difficulty, in conflict, and maybe one of the most radical moments of their collective lives. And isn't it rather amazing that the church, the Christian church, Roman, uh, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Protestants of all stripes, have used that supper to exclude people. Yeah. Not to include. Yeah. By the way, um, there are a lot of jokes about the Last Supper. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me one, please. I'm sure you have a few. <laughs> oh, I do. I do. Like, what did Jesus say at the Last Supper? And one of the things he said was, hey, all of you who want to be in the picture come sit on this side of the table <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that is true we don't see anybody's back right like we don't see, don't the see anybody's fullness. back yeah it's uh i'm sure you as an artist probably know this but that that is a perfect perfect picture yeah i mean the lines yeah. the proportion yeah. the all depth everything well, it's just one of the things that leonardo da vinci understood was um was the Fibonacci sequence. In other words, that there's a perfect ratio between everything. Um, there's a perfect ratio even, let's say between the elbow and the wrist, between the wrist and the pinky finger. And not only did he understand that when he was drawing the human figure, but he understood that kind of in an ethereal or cosmic sense, right? He really truly probably was a genius and far beyond his time. And the way that he could convey his ideas was through this art form. That was a way that people could receive them. But I think his ideas were much bigger than the time in which he lived aloud. Um, but yeah, that's, that's probably to me one of the most fascinating things. And that's true about the Mona Lisa too, is this Fibonacci sequences at play in, in, in all of his paintings. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like that great spiral of life. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah you know, I mean, when I think about this kind of upcoming piece that we're on that, that the God colors. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many directions to go in that. And, 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 and one of them is in sort of the idea, the social construction of color or race, right? Um, another is in colors representing kind of personality. What does it mean to sort of like express your personality? Another is in the various ways of seeing 
And it takes me back to like to Teilhard de Chardin's um, saying that the whole of life lives in that one word, seeing. How we see teaches us then how to be, what to believe and how to worship. And, you know, there are insects that's, that are tetrachromats that see thousands of more colors than you and I do. There are also insects that see UV. In other words, they, they live in a UV garden, right? There are also those who see multiples of everything, like a bumble, like a bee, um, who sees in kind of fractals. So there's so many ways of seeing. And, and this, this, this verse in the Bible really makes me think about all the different ways that one can experience color, which is not just through the human senses. We have a very limited range of what we can see, and yet we've made such a big deal socially about what color you are and what that means about your right to belong. Well, this gets back to the whole thing that we were talking about, about tribalism, mm -hmm. because um, tribes teach people what to see. Mm -hmm. I was taught that growing up, what to see. I was taught what to see yeah. and not to see certain things. Sure. I, I was not taught to see things equally, mm -hmm. um, but to see things with prejudice. So what has to happen so that we can break that, get through that barrier from being taught what to see to being taught how to mm. see? Mm. This, there's a furthering upon that in the Teardian sense is this um, tension. Actually, that's, it's, it's much broader than Teard. It's, I think, every wisdom thinker that I can think of right now. So I'm thinking about Thomas Berry. I'm thinking about Martin Luther King. Thinking about Teard. Thinking about Sally McFaig. Dif different people I've been reading. Barbara Holmes uh, is, is, is the tension and hey, I know this guy who's been talking about the tension between the no longer and the not yet. I do. I also, heard you heard of that guy? <laughs> you know, so so some of that I think is embracing the tension between what we were taught to see and what we would like to see, and having a radical imagination in that in between space. You know. That's abstract in some ways. So let, maybe we can come think about out loud. What, what does that actually look like and feel like? Well, I'm thinking that the important part of seeing for me um, is wrapped up in that, in, in the contemplative practice. Yeah of being aware of how my mind functions to judge and categorize and distinguish and do all these things. And if I'm not really careful, I can take those things as being reality when they are um, just judgments that I am making about the things that I see, not just allowing the thing to be. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is why um, 
the the practice of going to look at art yes. for example yeah and just not evaluating just yeah. being with a piece of art mm -hmm. can be so incredibly instructive i agree I think about what something that you said made me think about how when we are in that, even in, in, in conversation, I think about a tense moment in conversation where um, someone asks you a question, you may be in your own thought process, turn around and your expression may say something that is reflecting your thought process, but the other person inserts in that pause, a whole layer of interpretation of what that expression could mean, right? Mm -hmm. And and then responds from that place of interpretation instead of from the place of sort of pause and asking, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? You know, so, so much of learning to see, I think is in the pause. Do I need to, to believe the story I'm telling myself? Or can I pause long enough to hear it, but not abide by it or not act from it or clarify it, right? Even to have enough trust in a relationship to say, this is the story I'm telling myself. Is that true for you? Mm. Right? <laughs> so you're reminding me of something I have not thought about in years. Um, George, the man I refer to as my first spiritual teacher, although that's not technically true. But I just have given him that that category. Uh, George said that that a way to think about how to be in the world in a lighter way is to learn to do the dance of stimulus pause response, mm -hmm. stimulus pause response. And he said that that this practice is to get the second step of the dance to last longer and longer and longer stimulus pause and then respond because it's as you say it's in that pause that you have um the opportunity to take a deep breath to evaluate to uh just notice your own judgments about things mm -hmm. and how often we make them about us yes about me right it goes back to the need to decenter. you know we talk about a spiritual a daily spiritual practice as being about centering but the the great non-duality is is that we center to decenter. we we center the body and the being in order to decenter the ego and um I, yeah i guess I'm really leaning into this idea of that maybe learning to see is in that tension in the, mm -hmm. that the tension of the tension of opposites. And that's what um, Edward Edinger says that Jesus is symbolic of is, is of a, a person who became integrated and whole and reborn. I'm using quotes here because of his ability to hold the opposites to hold that place of tension, to see himself in Judas as easily as he could see himself in God, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So again, I just want to stress, there's a real risk in telling somebody you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, mm -hmm. because if the ego hears that at ego level, <laughs> they 
you get inflated. Yeah. There's no way to avoid doing that. Right. It's, it's maybe really it's about, like you're the salt of the earth and so is everyone else. You're the light so of the everyone. earth and so is everyone else. So, and so is everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> you are special and so is everyone else. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um I would have, you know, I pulled this book out right before we were talking. Um, uh, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, Goethe <laughs> uh, The Theory of Colors. Um, huh. You know, he's a German philosopher, uh, scientist, and he had, he really opened up what, what color study could mean. So he really went deep into understanding light, the refraction of light. He didn't get everything right for sure. But, you know, we, we've learned a lot about color and how colors are made. You know, it's either the absence, uh, it, it, white, for example, is uh, the reflection of all colors and black is the absorption of all colors. And in between that, there's a whole wide spectrum of everything else. But he's, he's writing scientifically and I'll read a passage here. Um, but it, it can be read so metaphorically too. He writes, if we pass from a totally dark place to one illumined by the sun, we are dazzled. In coming from a lesser degree of darkness to light that is not dazzling, we perceive all objects clearer and better. Hence, eyes that have been in a state of repose are in all cases better able to perceive moderately distinct appearances. And then in the act in which we call seeing, the retina is at one in the same time in different and even opposite states. The greatest brightness, short of dazzling, acts near the greatest darkness. In this state, we at once perceive all the intermediate gradations of chiaroscuro and all the varieties of hues. So even the retina operates in this tension between in opposite states of lightness and darkness. And so what we see, what we're able to take in and then express is the tension. I love that our body already kind of does that for us. That's kind of cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Tell me, um... Some people don't see colors mm -hmm. or all the colors. Right. They're genetically predisposed not to. Mm -hmm. And we call those people colorblind. Right. They can't see blue or green or whatever. And as I understand, that's not a condition that can be repaired. No, it's usually on the red green spectrum and it's usually in males. Well, I'm convinced women see more colors than men do anyway. So I, I, I'm thinking that, I, you know, when we use Peterson's translation about our task is to bring out the God mm -hmm. colors in the world, what about people who can't see those? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting metaphor and an interesting actual so social language that we have, because I, you know, I was raised in the sort of what, we can refer to as the colorblind 80s and 90s where um, we didn't say the word black. We didn't say uh, the word gay. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we, we sort of, uh, by omission, 
pretended that those things weren't either different or, or didn't exist. So in our language or lack of, we omitted people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that colorblindness, right? That is a refusal to see things or people as they are because you have some idea of what perfection is, which in our society, we've been taught that uh, whiteness is sort of perfection. And then we sort of get in denial of, of that, the fact that race or difference even exists. So that's the sort of social construct of colorblindness, right? That's how, that's how we as a society have been damaged by an ethos of colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the physicality of colorblindness, the biology of colorblindness. I think of someone like, I'm going to go even further than just being colorblind. I, I actually had my, the first love of my life was colorblind. And I used to make him crazy going, what color is that? What color is that? <laughs> he was like, ah, what he did was memory. Like he just learned by memory. I know that when the stoplight is on this side, it's red. And when the stoplight is on this side or the traffic light is on this side, it's green. Well, so he, he had to learn placement. He couldn't tell right? red and green? Mm-mm. So he learned placement. And, and that's how he saw color, right? Well. And yeah. Um, and, and so then I go deeper into like, well, blindness. Like I think of someone like Helen Keller, right? Who is blind and, uh, and also deaf. But, um, but the, the rich interior world that she seemed to have that enabled her to thrive, care for others, and create even inside of this inability to see. So I think we have these ideas about colorblindness as a biological state, colorblindness as a social state, when in fact, we have to just really embrace that there are so many ways of seeing. That my way of seeing red isn't the only way of seeing red. And your way of seeing green isn't the only way of seeing green. So maybe we're back to one of the, the saving functions of a, of a functioning tribe is that we help each other see. Yeah. And that's how, so again, to like a little nod to my, um, <laughs> my first love who sadly um, died of a heart attack a couple of years ago. And um, is he was taught how to know the colors so that would keep him safe in a car, for example. Someone taught him. And it makes me think of the root word of... Um, educate, which is educere, which is to Mm -hmm. lead out. So in awakening our color sense and awakening our sort of beingness in the world, we have to lead someone out. And you can almost see that happening from Mm -hmm. the dark into the light. And what helps us see color but light? In in graduate school, I had a professor of anthropology come and do a couple of weeks of guest lectures in a seminar that I was part of. And one of the most fascinating things, I remember, this sounds kind of kind of gross to talk about, but one of the most fascinating things I remember his saying is that so much of what we have learned to do involutionally was developed as a survival skill for the tribe. 
And he said, you mentioned mm -hmm. that you're sitting around a campfire or around a fire or a communal pot and you take something and it's gone bad. You put something in your mouth that if you ate it would make you unwell. And he said, so you have mm -hmm. this gag reflex. And he said the gag reflex was not for the person eating. It was for the person seeing the person who was eating right. so that they would know, do not put that into your mouth. Not a good thing to do. Right. Yeah. That's yeah i mean and there is always inevitably in any tribe let's say it's not painless it's not utopia it's not perfect there is pain and there is suffering and there is sacrifice right but i wonder how we can reframe those things um both thomas berry and pierre terre desjardins call suffering kind of an immense groping that any time that we have pain or suffering or someone else's gag reflex results in their being poisoned or worse death uh, then someone else's life is or the whole group's life is saved because of it but in that moment there's this immense groping or this immense sort of groaning even of pain and suffering that allows for the uplift or the consciousness raising of the whole. Well, you know, I learned this from Richard Orr that the only two ways really into non-duality is either through having a spiritual practice or through suffering. There's nothing that will break mm -hmm. you open more than that. And um, I, I want to go back yeah. just a little bit before we, we quit this to something about um, how the the radical message of Jesus. And I keep thinking about, okay, how has all of this relevant for what we're doing in this time of COVID and, and racial reckoning? The radical message of Jesus was about um, in, incredible inclusivity. And mm -hmm. here we have a church where around its most central ritual there are all these rules about who's not included or welcome at the table and it makes me wonder um, if, if there's not going to have to be uh, more going outside the tent outside the city um, of people in parachurch organizations and places like um, what Ilya Delio is doing and what Richard Rohr is doing and to a much, much, much smaller extent, what we're trying to do in ordinary life to say there's another way. There's another way to see things mm -hmm. and to relate to one another. And if we don't lift those ways up and really embrace them, it's a, to our own detriment. Yeah. Well, I just wonder if in this time, in this tension between the no longer and the not yet, if that's part of our radical reimagining. Um, I don't know that the church is ready for that yet, to drop some doctrines that and some prayers and some sayings that, that are so obviously exclusive 
and to radically reimagine them as inclusive. Well, you know, we've got to find more spaces I, you, to do that. I said two, three weeks we, ago yeah. that we are post-doctrinal and maybe I should go back and amplify, amplify on that. Um, we're in a post-doctrinal world. We have to be. So. Hmm. That's the world we are in. Are we going to live into it? Well, we have to. Yeah. Because yeah. if we yeah. keep doing what we do are doing and don't really address some of the profound, I mean, really profound cultural issues of our time, uh, we we don't have a future. I'm not being I'm not being histrionic when I say that. Mm -hmm. um, no, we have to do something about not only social injustice, poverty, and healthcare. We have to do something about climate change. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest issue my kids are inheriting and they didn't, they aren't the cause, <laughs> you know, um, there's the young woman, Greta Thunberg, who speaks so strongly about against climate change. And she is mad at the adults for giving her this problem. <laughs> and it's, yeah. I mean, she's beautiful in her strength, but the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, as we talk about Jesus's table and being inclusive and the colors and the God colors, inclusivity is not sameness. And that, that feels really important to uphold, right? Unity thrives in difference. It is not sameness. It is about being with the ways in which we are radically different and yet held in this sort of common container. Oh, and so let me respond to that by saying this, that in order to understand Jesus' teachings about, let's say, the Beatitudes, because it is by following those, identifying with the poor, identifying with the suffering, identifying with the dispossessed, that's what makes us the salt of the earth and the light of the world it's it's that when we understand jesus teaching in light of what was going on in the roman empire at the time that he came on the scene the roman empire had all these rules and regulations in place about who was in and who was out and who had the power to say who was in and who was out and Jesus said, the power does not come from an external authority. The power comes from the community of the beloved. And that's what I'm going to create. And that's what he did create. And that upset the authorities who were in charge of who was in, who was out, who set the head of the table and who got recognized and who didn't. So I just it would ask people to go through and look at all the meal situations that Jesus is involved in. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty they're pretty amazing. They're all parabolic. Yeah, yeah we gotta okay. we gotta be willing to give up some power. That's that's really yeah. it. Are we powerful enough yeah. to do that? That requires ego strength. 
and letting go of it entirely. <laughs> so. Well, as Robert Johnson kept saying to us over and over and over, you've got to have a really strong ego to put the ego That's aside. Right. All okay. right. Let's go be the God colors. Okay. <laughs>